Hello, and thank you for joining the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 69, The Forgotten Frontier, Conflict Within the Indian Territory. Before we get started today, I did want to apologize for missing the schedule last week. There's been a lot going on in my life at the moment, and unfortunately there may be some disruption as well in the weeks to come, but I am going to do my best. As a second note, there are going to be a number of names in this episode which come from basically Native American languages. Unfortunately, I am not a linguistics expert, or really any kind of expert, and I am probably going to completely butcher the pronunciation. I will do my best. Anyway, on with the episode. The Civil War disrupted just about every aspect of national life. Industry, trade, foreign relations, agriculture, academics, religion, and much more. But it also disrupted a very specific society within, but not part of, the United States. In 1860, there was no state of Oklahoma. It didn't exist yet, though the borders of it indeed appeared on the maps from this period, labeled quite clearly as the Indian Territory or Territories. As the 13 colonies grew over the course of a lifetime into the United States at mid-century, it pushed ever westward, overrunning the lands of many tribes. Every Native American or American Indian east of the Mississippi had to either integrate, in the process losing their tribal identity, or face the cruel reality of displacement. One by one, tribes vanished, or migrated to reservations westward, often driven at a brutal pace by army soldiers, as we'll see. Some bands resisted, especially the Seminole, but eventually they too were mostly killed if not captured and sent west. Those who departed into the west unwillingly settled into reservations mostly found within the Indian Territory, including most famously the Muscogee or Creek and the Cherokees. But other tribes, such as the Choctaw and the Chickasaw, and even the Seminole settled there too, making the best of their new life. Most of these had already thoroughly learned and adapted many of the skills, technologies, and culture on offer from Europe. This should also help us understand the character of the Indian removal policies. Far from expelling a barbarous or uncivilized horde, the policies targeted these tribes in large part precisely because they were well organized. Andrew Jackson, for one, believed they posed a military threat. He was not entirely wrong but he also never considered alternatives to Indian removal. And most other American settlers just wanted to steal the land. Resistance, as we will see, was simply not possible in the long run. While rapidly growing in economic strength, the tribe simply lacked the numbers to completely resist without foreign assistance. Yet when Americans bought up the land left behind, they found well-tilled fields, comfortable and sometimes modern brick houses, and the remnants of large slave plantations. In truth, many of the tribal elites looked and acted, much as did southern planters. This happened in the generation before the Civil War, but the memory of the Long Trail never entirely faded. In the three decades since, the tribes were built, and the United States did not come again and force them away. This was rather significant, because the land they gained was hardly worthless. Though not the richest or best land, and achingly far from home for some tribes while heartbreakingly close for others, the reservations lay in the eastern portion of the eventual Indian Territory. 
it held sufficient water to sustain the tribes by agriculture, as well as providing rangeland for hunting or herding. The land was, and still is, fairly similar to that settled in eastern Texas or Kansas, probably because it lies directly between the two. The greatest economic challenge the tribes faced lay in rebuilding. Thousands of tribespeople perished on the road under the harsh treatment meted out by the army. The Trail of Graves stretched as far as the Appalachians. And those who settled and survived on the new reservations had to create a new home, with nothing but what they brought with them. And yet they now also lay on the fringe of American civilization, without good trade routes and with little to trade. The soil of Oklahoma could support commercial agriculture, at least in part. However, it could not completely compete with the rich soils of the American South. The tribes would need to trade for many necessities, particularly manufactured goods, and they could buy them only from the United States. Worse yet, the United States limited much of the trade with tribes to politically appointed Indian agents. Often corrupt, the agents held far too much power over the tribes. Agents often sold shoddy goods at inflated prices, or tempted the miserable and desperate with liquor instead of medicine or tools. And they generally performed their actual job of managing local relationships poorly, if at all. Yet even conscientious and honest agents might make some poor decisions. The tribes could never do much about it, because they had little power to push back against arbitrary or mistaken decisions by the agents. Finally, the United States owed a great deal of money to the tribes. Millions of dollars, in fact. Adjusting for inflation, which is always a tricky business, some of these payments exceeded $100 million in today's money per tribe. Though this could hardly be called enough payment for the loss of their homelands, it at the least would have provided the funds needed to rebuild. However, successive administrations, mostly Democratic, frequently withheld the money due the tribes under these treaties. Yet rebellion in the Indian Territory was a complete non-starter of an idea. The United States had been far too powerful to challenge 30 years earlier, and since then had doubled in strength. Some individual American cities held more people than the entire Indian Territory put together. In short, though enduring a great deal of unfair treatment, the situation seemed more or less stable in 1860. The only thing which could possibly upset a power structure so heavily weighted in favor of the United States would be if something absolutely mad happened, like the entire country splitting into horrific civil war. I mean, if such an impossible thing happened, perhaps then the tribes might reconsider their situation and seek some advantage. The springtide bloom of secession directly affected matters among the tribes. While the full payments to the tribes had often been withheld in the past, many remittances did go through regularly. And in the 19th century, this often meant cold, hard cash. There were at times literal wagons taking payments in gold across the United States. This stopped, as the secession of the Deep South closed the main pathways of commerce. And there was a deep irony brewing here. The tribes under discussion hailed more or less exclusively from the southern portion of the United States, many of them from the Deep South. Southern American men primarily drove them from their homes, under a southern-born president. Though not exclusively advanced by the Democratic Party, both expansionism and Indian removal had indeed been primary goals of that political body. 
the Whigs, and later Republicans, had their own issues as regards Native American or American Indian rights, but more or less favored adherence to treaty obligations. Indian removal was a controversial topic. It had its domestic opponents. So in 1861, the tribes who had experienced no past evil from the Confederacy as a body because it was brand new, were at least willing to listen when diplomats came calling. And yet those diplomats represented the very states, and in some cases the same individuals, who had formerly displaced them. Meanwhile, the United States, which might now be willing to deal more equitably, could not do so until it secured Missouri and reopened a line of communications into the Indian Territory. But this would require time, and simply put, the United States did not have any to spare. The two main drivers of events on the Confederate side were Albert Pike and Ben McCulloch. We've discussed McCulloch before, an old Texas Ranger, Knight of the Golden Circle, and Mexican-American War veteran, in enough detail. Albert Pike was, in his own way, the same sort of fellow, except he was born in Massachusetts. Look, history is weird, and Pike really came from the most abolition-friendly state in the Union short only of Maine. He was never a Knight of the Golden Circle, as far as we know, though. Now, a burly fellow with the hair of a mountain man, Pike earned that hair in fur-trapping expeditions as far as New Mexico. But he settled in Arkansas, became a lawyer of all things, and then began a practice primarily within the Indian Territory. In this, he frequently represented tribespeople in disputes with the federal government. And in doing so, he not only built vital connections, but also earned a measure of gratitude and respect. Somewhere along the way, Pike also became remarkably loyal to slavery. He had traveled among slaveholders and finally became one with a plantation of his own. He wrote strongly in defense of slavery, and quite easily joined the burgeoning secession movement in Arkansas. And this began his special importance in the war. Pike and McCulloch both quickly garnered commissions as brigadier generals from Jefferson Davis, with a special mission. They were to go on a recruiting drive, trying to sway tribes to the Confederate cause, and not coincidentally, gain a few thousand soldiers for service in an expected campaign into Missouri. As we've seen, Ben McCulloch was actively fighting in Missouri in the latter half of 1861. Control over the Indian Territory itself was also an implicit goal for the Confederacy. It wouldn't necessarily permit the Confederacy to pressure Kansas, since any troops sent there were not being used in the far more important Missouri front. But if it passed into Union hands, the territory might permit federal troops to invade Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas. Now, given the realities of transportation in the West, this might appear a minor concern. But at the minimum, the Confederacy could not allow any raiding of the border. The Indian territories were perfectly situated to do this. Besides, the Confederacy might see the five civilized tribes as natural allies, for they held many slave owners among them. Why shouldn't they ally with a confederacy that guaranteed these rights against Republicans who would prefer to do away with slavery altogether? The tribes could prevent slaves from escaping from the border confederate states if they chose, creating a buffer zone against abolitionist power and influence. Finally, it's by no means clear whether the confederacy meant for this alliance to merely be a temporary measure with the possibility of ejecting the tribes once more in a hypothetical post-war world. Perhaps this would have occurred in time, perhaps not. 
but it was a possibility. It is hard to imagine the Confederacy, where white supremacy was the de facto law of the land, would honor or respect Native rights if they proved inconvenient. Slaveholders wanted to claim Kansas even before the war. Why not claim the Indian territories afterward? But all that lay in a potential future. In 1861, the Confederacy focused on the immediate problem, gaining allies and dominating the Indian Territory. So Generals Pike and McCulloch went there in person, and they began their work. Ultimately, the Confederacy would recruit from multiple tribes. But for our story today, we're going to focus on the Cherokee and the Muscogee Creek. Now in part, this is simply because in both cases there's a very vivid story of personal conflict. To understand the story of the Cherokee, let us look at Chief John Ross and Stan Waddy. Chief John Ross had been born all the way back in 1790, and even fought under the command of Andrew Jackson himself in the War of 1812. Of course, when Jackson attained the presidency, he wanted Ross and the whole Cherokee Nation swept aside anyhow. Ross was only one of several influential figures in the Cherokee Nation, of course. But he had particular importance because of his ability to straddle the line between the traditionalist faction that often opposed the United States and European culture, and a more modern progressive faction that wanted to adopt much of American culture. Now, Ross no more wanted to leave his home than the other Cherokee, and he worked strenuously to lobby the government for his tribe. Ross was an adept politician, of mixed American and Cherokee heritage, he spoke English as well as anyone, and he functionally understood how the American government worked. By 1828, Ross more or less became the principal chief of his tribe. The tribe did not, at the time, see fit to appoint any other chiefs as co-leaders once his mentors passed away and his brother proved an incapable politician. Unfortunately for Ross and the Cherokee, this was a critical moment, and another faction would soon undermine his bargaining power. In 1835, a group of Cherokee who wanted out of the increasing pressure from the United States and the state of Georgia signed the Treaty of New Echota. The treaty was deeply unfair. While only a faction signed it, and the treaty wasn't ratified by the tribal council or John Ross, the United States government, headed by President Jackson, simply applied it to the entire tribe regardless. John Ross pondered resistance, and he tried to negotiate. But in the end, he could see the writing on the wall. The dissenting treaty faction fatally undercut the Cherokee's unity. Notably, one of the original treaty signers was one Stand Wadi, born Degadoga or Degataga, but renamed when his parents converted to Moravian Christianity. His name, curiously enough, is more or less a direct translation. His birth name would mean he stands, or stand united, and he was the son of Uwati. He was very much one of the most progressive of the Cherokee, as were the treaty signers in general, adapting European ways easily, and even publishing his own Cherokee newspaper. But he tired of the constant squeezing from the state of Georgia and the federal government. He wanted to move west and start a new plantation free of such interference. The Cherokee had, in fact, passed a law promising death to anyone who alienated tribal land, that is, those who sold it outside the tribe. They deemed this a harsh necessity, given that successive treaties by individuals threatened to destroy their entire community. Right or wrong, This measure was indeed invoked following the signing of the Treaty of New Echota. Many of those who put their names to it were hunted down and killed. But Standwadi survived such an attack. In any case, it 
didn't matter in the end whether the signers lived or died. Those who signed and their supporters departed into the West. They apparently traveled more easily than those who followed, too. And once the full tribe did resettle past the Mississippi, those who survived the journey anyway, the old feuds were, if not forgotten, then at least put aside. Standwaddy remained important and powerful, but John Ross remained principal chief. So matters stabilized until the Civil War. But by then, John Ross was past 70, while Stan Waddy was only 55 in his political prime. And when Albert Pike rolled up and pitched his new confederacy, he discovered Waddy's faction eager to listen. And there were good and bad reasons for this. First, Waddy undoubtedly saw political opportunity, both for himself and the Indian Territory as a whole. The looser confederate government, whatever its political leadership had done or not done in the past, might be able to accept and protect the Cherokee. They proclaimed states' rights, and perhaps the Indian Territory, with its firm borders already outside any existing Confederate state, could find a place there. But so too, many of Wadi's supporters were also fellow slave owners and wanted to guarantee their property. They were not poor or downtrodden, but politically aware individuals of means, who wanted to protect their own. Just like slave owners in the Confederacy, they had immediate motivation to support the new political order. Opposing them were, for the time being, John Ross and his majority. That majority included the traditionalist faction of Cherokee. Notably, these mainly rejected slavery and favored the Union, although they did not necessarily propose to get directly involved in the war. Rather, they believed that supporting the Confederacy might lead to the Union invading them, or perhaps shoving them once again westward. If the Confederacy lost, the Union might dispose of the treaties altogether. Over the long summer of 1861, most of the tribes in the Indian Territory went over to the Confederacy, though not necessarily with full enthusiasm. All had their Unionist factions. And in part, some of the young born in the new lands just wanted excitement, as did youths across the United States. The Confederacy offered, and so they accepted. But not without challenge. Among others, Chief Apotheahola of the Creek gathered his band to oppose the Confederacy. Along with a few like-minded souls from other tribes, he kept a separate camp and refused to support the new order, largely for the same reasons as John Ross. Instead, Apotheahola sought assistance from the federal government, which asked him to move directly to Kansas. Crucially, this exchange happened in August, but the band did not move quickly while the weather still held and perhaps they could not. As summer gave way into autumn, however, and soon enough winter, Colonel Douglas Cooper of the Confederate Army gathered his own war band of 1,300, mixed between Texans and allied tribesmen, and set out to conquer Apotleihola's 1,700 fighters, or failing that driving him away. Cooper's men, however, had clear supply lines for arms and horses, which would prove a crucial factor in the coming fight. At the same time, Apotleihola and his men had to protect around 10,000 civilians. Colonel Cooper aimed to ambush and surprise Apotheahola's camp initially. But the man anticipated their arrival and was not caught off guard. He had already moved his people. In the Battle of Round Mountain on November 19th, Cooper won in the sense of inflicting more casualties, but he failed to do much more. In fact, he had to fall back to regroup, which gave Apotliahola time to consolidate and move towards Kansas. But Cooper returned, and he hit the band again on December 9th at Chustotalasa, 
and once again he inflicted more casualties, but he did not yet break the band's morale. Apothleahola slowly continued to retreat with his reduced force, intent on protecting their families. Cooper probably could have just allowed them to escape, but he attacked once again on December 26, 1861. Here, Cooper's men broke through. They captured goods and some of the civilians, but the main body did escape and fled to Kansas, but under severe conditions. The problem lay in the hard reality that it was now the middle of winter. Had it not been so, Apothleahola and his allies might well have been able to flee to Kansas in good order. As it was, they made the trek under brutal conditions and many did not survive. And when they arrived in Kansas, they settled only temporarily at an army fort. But the forts lay close to the border, a very long way from the center of federal power or even the Kansas River. There was no possible way for the Union to move supplies there in the middle of winter, especially given that Confederate raiding threatened the Missouri River. Had this been a time of peace, perhaps by desperate effort, the nation could have outfitted a convoy, gotten it upriver, and then by wagon down to the fort. Perhaps, but it would have represented a monumental logistical effort on the periphery of the nation. In wartime, it was simply impossible. Even the very largest army forts had simply never planned to support 9,000 civilians. So Apotheliahola's people struggled to survive, and many had no strength left. For the record, Union officials moved heaven and earth and still failed. They spent every penny of their funds, and then even more from their own pockets. But this was still the thinly settled frontier in midwinter. Hundreds died, perhaps as many as a thousand in total, of the ten thousand who fled to the fort. Malnutrition and exposure to the cold took its toll in that first year. But John Ross and the Cherokee avoided that fate by finally siding with the Confederacy. Back in August of 1861, clearly following the news of Bull Run, he knocked the teeth out of the traditionalist faction and sided with Stan Waddy. Once again, Ross could see the writing on the wall. Yet he could not avoid the consequences of that decision. While this move prevented the Cherokee from suffering division and destruction as before, it placed Stan Waddy at the center of events. Waddy accepted a commission as a Confederate officer, and raised his own enthusiastic regiment. In fact, the traditionalists did too, but they proved entirely uninterested in dying for the Confederacy or slavery. And thousands more Cherokee alone, not to mention the other tribes, departed the Indian Territory and joined up as Union soldiers. Since it is useful to see how this will play out, Ross's fateful decision, one in which there may not have been a good choice at all, would come back to haunt him in the coming years. So many Cherokee fled to the Union side that Standwaddy's supporters now had the power to elect him as the new principal chief, nominally deposing Ross. Waddy then attacked and burned Ross's home, driving him from the territory as well. Chief John Ross became an exile once more, this time ejected by his own tribesmen. His long-standing contacts in the United States were able to bring him to Washington, however. By now, though, the federal government had no particular friendship to offer the man who led his tribe over to the Confederacy. John Ross argued that he had been coerced, and this was at least partly true. He could point to the many Cherokees serving the United States Army, just as he once had, and this was also true. In the main, however, Abraham Lincoln and Congress alike had very little time to deal with the Cherokee until the war was won, and then, of course, Lincoln himself passed into the grave. In the post-war period, 
Andrew Johnson gave at least some credence to Ross's claims. The Cherokee lost some of their treaty rights, but in the end avoided the worst of punishments. They retained their land, and Stan Waddy's attempt to blame the whole mess on Ross finally failed. Chief John Ross, who had served the Cherokee people with distinction for more than 30 years, finally passed into the grave in 1866. He had worn himself to the bone with constant lobbying, and not entirely successfully. But he preserved the Cherokee people in the end. Stan Waddy rose to the rank of Brigadier General in the Confederacy, and became the very last general rank officer to surrender to the Union in 1865. He lost his slaves, of course, and for a time went into exile with another tribe. He finally returned home and died in 1871. Apothele Yehola died in 1863, and lies buried alongside his daughter, who perished in that first killing winter in Kansas. His people in the main did recover and finally returned to their lands. But let us also take a moment to examine Albert Pike, partly because he is not going to be very important in the future. Pike actually proved to be a terrible general, with no military capacity whatsoever. But he survived the war, and afterward became a leader in the Freemason movement. At the dawn of the 20th century, Masons created a memorial statue for him in Washington, D.C., which stayed in place until 2020, when it was destroyed by angry protesters. Call that some measure of rough justice. However, with this episode, we have broadly passed over matters in 1861. We are now going into the winter of 1862. And strange that it may seem, given the lackluster performance of the Union Army in 1861, the next six months will see success after success. Although final victory will prove elusive in 1862, the first half of that year would see Abraham Lincoln and the Union gain an unrivaled track record of success. The only problem was, success bred complacency. In order to finally win the war, Abraham Lincoln was going to have to radically reshape Union strategy. He would do this in the end, but not until the killing fields of Antietam. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.